Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you guys. You look a little bit extra chipper. I think you've had a shot of vitamin D. How grateful are you for this week we've had? The faucet turned off. It's incredible. What a gorgeous, gorgeous week it's been. My name's Christopher. Super excited this morning to open the scriptures with you. As we continue our series that we're calling Living Church, we're going to be jumping back into Paul's rich, incredible letter that he wrote to the church of Ephesus. And so if you'd like a Bible, raise your hand. We love the word here at River West. We believe it's living and active. It has power to change the very fabric of our lives, move the furniture around in our world. And so we're going to be opening these scriptures that we believe are alive with God's power as we look to the traits that make a church a dynamic, compelling force of Jesus' love and life in our world, we've been calling this series Living Church. Last week, Pastor Adam did an incredible job bringing us through this list to trait number six, the trait of maturity. And so last week, Adam explained that that although this word has fallen on hard times in our culture where nothing that is not novel and new and young is cool, we live in a, a culture of ageism that tends to elevate things that are novel and young and cool, there is really no higher compliment that you can pay someone that is following Christ than to actually say that they're mature in Christ, that they're growing into someone that is living and loving like Jesus so that who Jesus is is represented through their life. And so as a church, maturity is our goal. And last week, Adam explained that when something is mature, it, it's come to the end of a process of development over time as it has taken on character, it becomes mature. It becomes complete. And so of all the things that, that are living in our world that are growing, the church is a living thing that in, in order to be healthy, it must constantly grow. So Living Healthy Church is a growing church. It's constantly growing in faith and in love, in unity, in our gratitude, in our generosity. A living church, a growing church, it is the church that Jesus is looking for in our world. If you think about it, the way that you can distinguish how healthy and mature something is, is by paying attention to whether it's growing. Healthy things grow. Whether they're human beings or animals or trees or junior hires, healthy things grow. And the church, because it's a living thing, because the church is not a building, it's a people, churches that are healthy are constantly growing and being stretched to become a community that embodies Jesus in the way that we live and love. Of all the beautiful living things that right now are just showing off here in Oregon, as we go out and we see just, just everything alive and changing with the seasons, I love this time of year. The church of Jesus Christ 
of all living things is the thing that God cares about most, that cares for the most. No other living thing in all creation gets the amount of care and concern and attention that the church gets because it is the living thing that represents the goodness and reality of who God is to our world most profoundly. So as a community, we're always praying and saying, Lord, we want to mature, we want to grow into a community that honors Jesus. And as it turns out, the same passion to see the church grow and mature was what led the apostle Paul from a Roman prison cell to write a letter to a young congregation filled with people that had a lot of growing to do. (laughs) Many times we read the scriptures and in the New Testament, we'll read an epistle like Ephesians and we'll actually think to ourselves, these were generally some nice people. I bet they just cheered, you know, when they got these letters. They were living holy lives and everyone just high-fived and they sat around a campfire and read this letter. The truth is they were a bunch of rascals um, in Ephesus. They were former ex-idolaters and pagan worshipers that radically were introduced to Jesus. Their lives were turned upside down and this letter was written to actually immature Christians that had a lot of growing to do. So with that, knowing that when it comes to maturity, we're all beginners, we're all beginners, that we don't become fully mature in this life, that it's a process that all of us are on together. Can I get one amen? Amen. Amen. Avoid Christians that think they've already arrived and are God's gift of maturity to the world. We have some growing to do with our friends in Ephesus as well. So with that, turn to Ephesians chapter 5 as we jump back into Paul's incredible letter of encouragement to help believers in Christ grow. We're going to start at Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrance offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints or God's holy people. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret, But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. 
For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is God's word. Right from the beginning, we're just riveted, if you're paying attention, by this instruction that Paul leads with at the beginning of the passage in verse 1, where he instructs us and tells us, be imitators of God. That has to be hands down one of the most dumbfounding, radical, riveting instructions in all of Scripture. Be like God. Imitate God. The Greek word that Paul uses for imitators is this Greek word mimetes, and it's a word that we get our English word mimic from the Greek word mimetes. It means to, to study someone, to, to watch their mannerisms, and then to copy them. And so with that picture, we have this endearing portrait in verses 1 and 2 of children mimicking or imitating the parents that they look up to and respect and adore. You know, more often than not, kids who are raised in a loving environment end up imitating the things that their parents do. And if you ask kids what they want to be like when they grow up, most kids will say, I want to be like my mom or I want to be like my dad. That gets broken and fractured in our fallen world. But in God's design, children are intrinsically hardwired to imitate their parents. It's why boys have this irrepressible desire to climb up on the bathroom sink and lather themselves all up with shaving cream. The shaving cream beard which I've seen this scene play out many, many, many times in our home. I've stopped my children many times from grabbing the clippers and shaving themselves bald like dad, you know, just running in, shaving cream and everything. It's like, no, you know, I'm kind of pulling it off, but like I really don't think you should take a razor, you know, to, to your head. But they want to imitate dad. In fact, I remember uh, this was like six months ago, our son Asher who makes me laugh every single day. He went into um, his, his bedroom and he glued on a beard. He like just glued this, this, this beard on and he came out and he was like looking like, like big and in charge. And I was like, dude, what's going on? And he was like, dad, I'm you. It, it was awesome. Kids imitate their parents. It's why little girls, even the sweetest, 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 sweetest little, little girls will raid their mom's purse like little robbers and raid their makeup stash, and, and actually doll themselves up with lipstick so that they look like the Joker from the Batman movie. I mean, there's lipstick, like, sideways, and they're like, look, Mom, I'm you. It, it, kids do this because they're hardwired to imitate their parents. One, one of my favorite, favorite imitation scenes from, from the Kaufman house, it happened this Halloween and our youngest son, Asher, um, what you need to know about him is part of God's image in him. He's incredibly, incredibly humorous. He loves making people laugh. And he has like a thousand costumes. So if you come over to dinner at our place, you'll get a costume show 
uh, that comes with dinner. It's amazing. It's the best show in Portland, uh, best variety show in the world. He's hilarious. The costumes are always a little bit off color and weird. It's never Wolverine, just Wolverine. It's like Wolverine slash Leprechaun. You know, like it. It's awesome, awesome. So creative, so unique. I love my little guy. I was so so honored this Halloween because Asher, he came out of his room in a costume and I said, buddy, is that your Halloween costume? He said, yes, dad. And I said, what are you going as for Halloween? And he said, you. And I saw this. There's a picture back there. This. (laughs) And I said, wow, Asher, like your hair's red. And he, he said, dad, you play guitar and I'm going as a rocker. So I'm going as you, except way cooler. So apparently if I was cool, I would look like that and I would be hanging out on Hawthorne, like writing like death metal songs and reading sad poetry, I guess. And so, so you, you can take that down right there. That, I felt so honored. I was like, wow, my son's going as me for Halloween and I'm not that cool, by the way. But we know this, the primary way that children learn how to navigate the world is actually by imitating their parents. It's fascinating. There's been a lot of research done over the last 10 years on human development, and psychologists have actually discovered that the primary way that children learn what it means to be a human being is through imitation. As good Westerners, we stress cognitive stuff. We're big believers in education, so important to educate, raise up children, The primary way that children actually learn how to be a human being is by imitating the example they have. It's why it is so heartbreaking that we live in times where where children grow up without godly mothers and fathers nurturing them. It's because children don't know how to navigate life without having an example to imitate. Children learn through imitation. Likewise, the primary that we grow as God, God's children and get our bearings and learn how to navigate this fallen world where the Spirit of God is making things new is actually by becoming imitators of Jesus Christ. And so the goal of Christian maturity, if you were to boil it down, it's to imitate Jesus. That's the goal, not just to learn facts about Jesus, not to just amass these stories to enrich our lives. The goal of Christian maturity is to become imitators of God, that through our lives, the world might see what Jesus looks like. And so to help us towards that goal, to grow and mature into people that radiate Jesus, Paul gives us three exhortations that he wants us to imitate Christ through. In this passage, if you're taking notes, here's the three exhortations. They go like this. Paul tells the church in Ephesus to imitate Christ through the way they love, through the way they live, and through the way they worship. Imitating Jesus in our loving, living, and our worshiping. Right from the bat, if you notice, in verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul connects 
this stunning command to be imitators of God in verse 1 with the way that Christ lived a life of love. So in verses 1 and 2 again, we read, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Well, churches sometimes tend to measure someone's spiritual maturity by their gifts and abilities or by how much they have learned from the scriptures. For Paul and Jesus and the New Testament writers, love is the distinguishing mark of Christian maturity. And in the end, you're only as mature as you are loving. That's why elsewhere in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, not 32, 13, (laughs) it's not a number, Paul emphatically states, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, every single one of them, and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, this is a lot of alls, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. It's, love is the one quality that if you're not maturing in it, you can't compensate with learning. You can't compensate with, with accomplishing great works or moving mountains. If you're not growing and maturing in love, you're not growing and maturing in Jesus. And so mature people are growing into people that see people like Jesus. That go out of their way to serve people like Jesus. To embrace and welcome people like Jesus. That's what mature Christians have been called to do is to emulate Jesus' love in every sphere of relationship in their lives. But this is a deeply, deeply humbling command if we take it seriously. Because how did Christ love us? Well, Paul tells us right here, look once more at what Paul says about Christ's love. In verse 2, it says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's one of the best definitions of love. In a time where we have so many definitions of love, let me propose that the best definition of love is this. Giving up yourself so others might benefit. Giving up yourself for the benefit of others is the love that compelled Christ to go to the cross, give up his life, for people that were enemies, for, for people that were mocking him, Jesus laid down his life and gave himself up for us. By the way, that, that's why later on in chapter 5, Paul echoes this same exhortation when he says to husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The essence of Christ-like love is giving up your time, your presence, your affirmation, your attention, your care, your concern 
giving up yourself for other people, giving your life away to others, not just giving stuff. You know, many times this time of the year, I'm a gift giver. I love giving gifts. I love receiving gifts. I took that test, like the love language test, years ago. It was almost like 100% between, between giving gifts and receiving gifts and, and words of affirmation. That's the way I've been hardwired to give and receive love. I love it. I love it. I love going out. I love shopping for my wife and my kids and that moment where somebody opens up a present and, and they just, they, they're a glow, you know, with gratitude. And you hit the mark. And you, I love it. How many of you guys, you just love giving gifts? Love giving gifts. Do you know the people in your life, to the gift givers for a moment, you can give stuff. It's no substitute for you. What your kids really want, what your spouse really wants, is you. Is you. The greatest gift that you can give away is actually you. So as we're learning to love like Jesus, Jesus is not just looking for our resources or just our money. He's looking for us to give of our very selves so that others might be enriched and blessed. That's what a life of love looks like. And let me tell you something, River West. When churches grab on to this kind of loving, of giving up ourselves so that others might be built up and and blessed, let me tell you something. It changes the world. It has the power to change the course of history, to change communities, to change cities. And it's why in the first three centuries, the gospel began to spread like wildfire and churches were planted in places like Ephesus. It's directly connected to the way that the early church loved their enemies, loved outsiders and welcomed people in to their community with loving arms. I have two quotes from you, for you guys. One that, that just encapsulates the way that Christians loved one another in the first century is by a Christian philosopher and historian named Justin Martyr. Listen to the way that Justin Martyr describes the love of the Christian community here. He says, we who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possession more than anything else Now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We who used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or a country, now because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. And if you're paying attention, that sure sounds like a lot of what Paul calls for in Ephesians. That sounds like the love that he's been describing from the very first first letter of Ephesians is this kind of love that gives itself up so that others might be blessed. See, the Lord loved that point right there. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. How about this quote right here? This is from Clement of Alexandria describing a newly converted baptized Christian, Clement said he impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. 
He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he does not complain. That's the kind of love that the church grabbed a hold of, gladly giving of themselves so that others might see the goodness of, goodness of Jesus and be welcomed in to this thing we called church, and it's why the gospel spread like wildfire. No, it's always just mystified me that in spite of the fact that the church had very few organized missionary or evangelism programs, very scarce resources, and were facing extreme persecution. Under, under emperors like Nero, the church had so much against it, yet it was an unstoppable force in the world in the first three centuries. And the reason that the church was unstoppable is because they were imitating Jesus and the way that he loved people. And it drew the attention of the Greco-Roman world. And people couldn't turn away from this compelling community that was overflowing with love. But that's exactly what Christ has promised us. Is if we love this way, it will draw the attention of the onlooking world and it will change people's lives. That's why in John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus promises his disciples and tells them, by this, all people will know that you're my followers if you have love for one another. If you love like I love, that's what will change the world. But if we take this serious, this is very hard. To walk in love like Jesus walked, to give ourselves up for others, including those that are our enemies, to pray for them, to, to pursue people that are difficult to love. How can we walk this way? Anyone who takes this, this command, this exhortation to imitate the way that Jesus loves, what you'll be confronted with, and I've seen this in my own life, is that the ingrained patterns in your life don't point you to love others. They point you to love yourself. To look out for yourself. There's self-centered tendencies and sinful ingrained patterns that everywhere we turn in our culture, people say, look out for you, look out for yourself, love yourself. That anyone that, that wants to imitate the way that Jesus loves, you're going to see incongruencies in your own life. And, and so to help us love like Jesus Paul brings us to his second exhortation, and he says, to love like Jesus, you must also imitate the way that Jesus lived his life. And so in verses 3 to 8, Paul shows us what imitating Jesus' life looks like and the implications that come from that. And so in verse 3, we read, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure 
or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you through empty words. Because of these things, the wrath, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. And listen to this. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. The lifestyle that Paul describes here in verses 3, this list of vices, it's in stark contrast to the love and life that we're called to imitate in Christ. And so what Paul is doing is he's putting two ways to live beside one another, and he's creating a pretty stark, poignant contrast in this passage right here. I created a chart just to help you see what Paul is doing to follow just the the flow of logic in this passage. What Paul is doing is he's putting in, in, in one column the way of Ephesus that these believers were accustomed to living in Ephesus right beside the way of Jesus. And he's asking them the question, which way of life are you going to live? The way of Ephesus That way of life is a way of sexual immorality, but the way of Jesus is a way of love and purity. The way of Ephesus, the way of the world, is a way of covetousness, of constantly, constantly being filled with envy. And and Paul will say that covetousness, it's idolatry, it's taking things in our world and giving them primacy in in our lives, and loving them and devoting more of our time and attention and love to something other than God, turning good things into God things, into idols. Paul calls that covetousness, and he says, let there be no covetousness uh, among you. Stop turning the things um, in your world into idols, They get all of your time and attention, and instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let your lives overflow with gratitude towards God, the giver of every good and perfect gift. Instead of unholy talk and crude joking, let your words edify others. Instead of tearing people down or telling jokes that cut people down, shame them, humiliate them, use your words to build others up and to edify them so the church can be built up in love. Instead of foolishness, let you be filled with wisdom and walk in wisdom because the times are evil and you need to discern what the will of the Lord is. Instead of worshiping idols like like everyone in Ephesus, does. Worship Jesus. Instead of imitating pagans, imitate Christ. And so what Paul is doing in this passage is he is putting these two ways of living side by side and telling the church, you once lived this way. And now that kind of behavior, that old life, that's not you anymore. That's not you anymore. So live these lives that will reflect and imitate Jesus in every aspect 
of your life. You know, we read this list. It's a bit shocking. It's a bit intense as we read through these lists of, of, of vices right here. But no one living in Ephesus reading this list would have been shocked by a list like this because the way of Ephesus that Paul describes here, these vices, these were culturally acceptable behaviors in Paul's day. What you need to understand to really get the essence of this contrast that Paul is making is that Ephesus was not a nice place whatsoever. That it was one of the most immoral, evil, idolatrous, debaucherous cities in Asia Minor. Ephesus was infamous for the temple of Artemis, which served, which served as like an icon of its paganism and its idolatry. I have a photo right here of, of what the temple would have looked like, or artist's rendition of the temple of Artemis. Artemis herself was a sex goddess represented by a huge black idol carved out of a rock that, according to tradition, fell out of the sky when this black rock fell out of the sky. People carved images resembling goats and cows, put all these gourds and funky-looking things on this black rock, bowed down to it, and believed as they did they would have fertile lives, but actually would worship Artemis by engaging in many orgiastic sexual practices. And as Paul says later on in this passage, things too shameful to speak of. And so the temple of Artemis was this den of debauchery where people would go in and there would be hundreds of male and female prostitutes in the temple that worshipers could sleep with as an expression of their worship of Artemis. The temple itself contained one of the largest art museums and banks in its day. So in addition to being a religious center, it was also a cultural center and an economic center, a business center. And one quarter mile around the circumference of the temple of Artemis, it was considered a safe zone and sanctuary for criminals. So you can imagine the crowd that gathered here at the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. One pagan philosopher of the day, Heraclides, said that Ephesus was, and I quote, listen to this, the darkness of vileness itself. Their morals were lower than animals, and the inhabitants of Ephesus were fit only to be drowned. End quote. This was Ephesus, not a nice place to live, a very dark, difficult place to be the church, to be children as light, and to walk like Jesus in a dark, unrighteous context, much like our own. Much like our own culture right now. I read through that list and I see things that bear a lot of resemblance to the pain that is overflowing and coming into the light in our own culture right now. Over the last few weeks, I imagine like many of you, 
as the allegations of sexual assault and abuse had been exposed by people of power, predominantly men in our culture, my initial reaction to these things was to be astounded. I was blown away. Then my astonishment moved into just being appalled and embarrassed by the sins and the darkness that's being exposed to, to gratitude that at least these things are coming out in this cancer in our society. This darkness is coming into the light to just outrage and in anger. But then as I spent some time camping out in this passage this week, I, I feel like the spotlight of conviction, it shifted. It shifted. It shifted from the darkness out there, which is prevalent, and it's so easy to see. I don't have to be up here and rail on these things if you've been paying attention to the fact that we live in a world that feels like it's getting darker by the moment. It shifted, and I believe the Lord began having a conversation about the darkness within here. I began to pray for us as a community that there wouldn't be a hint of this kind of lifestyle uh, among us, in my home and in, in our community. I began to pray for us. You know, that is Paul's intention in this passage is actually not not to actually rail against the darkness of the culture of Ephesus. It's to actually wake up the church and address the, the saints. So you need to know that. This is an interpretive key of Ephesians 5. If you don't get this, you might do some dangerous interpretations of this passage. This wasn't written to sinners. It was written to saints. It was written to saints. You notice in verse 1, he says, I'm writing to you as beloved children walk in love. Walk in love, beloved children. In verse 3, we see once again that Paul's writing to the saints in Ephesus. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. As is proper among the saints. Later on, he'll address us as children of light. So this was not primarily written to people that were living in darkness and were unconverted and hadn't been introduced to Jesus. And so when we read verses where it says, like in verse 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. He's not writing to Christians or thinking of Christians that are just struggling with sins saying if you struggle with any of these things or if there's a hint of any of this in your life, you're not an inheritor of Christ's kingdom. That's moralism, and we would all be damned. None of us could stand before God because there's hints of this in our lives. He's saying, no, like, that's an unconverted Ephesian. <laughs> hasn't been introduced to Jesus yet. Hasn't met Jesus yet. Hasn't heard the gospel yet. Has not been welcomed into the light. That's not you. In verse 8, he couldn't be more explicit in verse 8, but because he tells us, for at one time, you were darkness, 
But now you, church, follower of Jesus, you are light in the Lord. You are not darkness. So walk as children of the light. Paul says you didn't just live in the darkness of Ephesus, believers. You were a part of the darkness. And now you're not darkness anymore. You're children of light, so live like who you are. Paul, with the strongest, strongest terms in his reach, as he's writing to the church, is telling them, and by association, as we read the Spirit-inspired letter, us, River West Church, you've got to live differently. You've got to live differently than the world is living. You can't live like you used to when you were darkness because you're not darkness anymore. You're a light. So live like children of light. Don't get sucked in to this old lifestyle because it's not becoming of who you've been called and baptized in Christ to be. That's not who you are anymore. So stop living that way. Stop living that way. River West, friend, there's so much grace in this passage right here. I know that preachers like myself sometimes get up on stages like this and they spend their whole time just railing, railing against sins in our culture. You need to understand it overflows with grace. If you're struggling with any sin this morning and you have publicly confessed Jesus as your Messiah, as your Lord, you know what he wants? He just wants to wake you up and he wants to wrap you in the light of his presence and heal whatever that thing is. He doesn't want you to hide or run for the shadows. He wants you to welcome his light, to confess that thing so that he can heal it. It's why there's that wonderful invitation in verses 13 and 14 where it says this, if anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Now listen to this. For anything that becomes visible is light. When we confess darkness within us, it becomes light. That's what light does best, is it overwhelms the darkness. You can test this hypothesis, and you will get the same proof every single time. Light versus darkness. Darkness will not win 1% of the time. Go into a dark room. Turn on the light. Light will overwhelm and conquer the darkness 100% of the time. You confess that thing. It becomes light you're forgiven, you're healed. That's the grace of the gospel. That's how bold you can be with confronting your own ingrained sin patterns is you don't have to keep secrets anymore. Children of light don't have to. You can. It'll rob you of your joy. It'll interrupt your witness to the world, but you don't have to anymore. That's the grace of the gospel. You don't have to hide anymore. To drive this home, I love this, what Paul does. In verse 14, he writes and he says, Therefore, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Did you know that actually these are the lyrics of a worship song? They're the lyrics of a worship song. 
The early church during baptism services, during this time, they would write hymns that they would sing over people that were getting baptized, people that were coming out of the darkness, that were once darkness and were welcomed into the community of Jesus. They would sing the lyrics of baptism hymns over them, and these are actually lyrics straight from one of those baptism hymns. When somebody was baptized and they confessed Jesus as Messiah, Lord, Redeemer, healer of their lives, and put that public confession before others, they went under the water, they would come up, and the church would sing, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Isn't that amazing? What Paul's doing here is he's reminding these Christians in Ephesus of their baptism identity, that they're no longer darkness, they're children of light. They've been baptized, washed clean, and now we get to worship and adore our Lord and Savior Jesus by being filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can imitate him as children that just want to grow up to be like our father, to be like Jesus. We get to imitate him. And that's where this whole passage is moving us. As as we come before the Lord and we go, Lord, I, I want to imitate the way that you love. I need so much help. I need so much grace to live like you live, to lay my life down and give myself up for others. Lord, help me the greatest help we could receive to become imitators of God is to become adorers of Jesus, adorers of Jesus. And so that's where Paul moves from how we love to how we live to how we worship. And so if you're following the flow of Ephesians 5, the whole flow of the passage actually moves from this command and exhortation to be imitators of God to this invitation to be adorers of Jesus. That's how the flow goes. Walk in love. Walk in the light. But the way that you do that is by being a worshiper of Jesus. It's why Paul, towards the end of this passage in verses 18 and 20, gives us the scene of public corporate worship, of the church worshiping and singing and thanking Jesus from grateful hearts. It's in verses 18 to 20 after the baptism hymn. It says this, listen to these rich words. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the end, our imitation of Christ flows out of our adoration of Christ. You know, to be honest, if we try to love like Jesus and live like Jesus and imitate him without believing in our core and being riveted to the core by the truth that we are by grace his beloved children that have been adopted forever into his family and loved while we were darkness. 
if you don't believe that you're God's beloved children, Christianity will always feel like a crushing burden. This command and invitation to be imitators of God, it will feel always like a moral ideal out of reach. It'll weigh you down. Your Christian life will be joyless. But if you believe the Christmas story, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son who loved you and I and gave himself up for us, then you'll want to imitate this Jesus because you'll adore him. You'll adore him. Don't try to live the Christian life if your heart actually isn't filled with melody when you hear those words, if it doesn't strike every chord in you and there's a melody and a song, maybe you haven't met Jesus yet. Maybe you haven't woken up and the light of Christ hasn't shined on you because one of the greatest signs that you're, you're maturing, that the gospel's growing inside of you, that it's being expressed it is you want to adore Jesus. You want to imitate Jesus. You don't want to hide these secret sins in your life. You look at them and you reason to yourself. You go, you know what? He gave up everything for me. When I was his enemy, he loved me out of the darkness. You'll give up everything for him. I'm going to invite the worship team up here this morning. And we're going to respond this morning by coming to the communion table and putting these great truths to song. This morning, I, I hope as, as the scriptures have been read aloud and proclaimed in this place, I hope you know that you are loved and pursued by a God who is all love and all light, and you are welcome in his presence. He knows where you're at. He knows every secret thing, and you are welcome to be right where you're at, your love. But would you allow his light to so illuminate your life that you could be even more aglow with his love. That's what Christian healing looks like, friend. As we come to the communion table and you take the bread and you take the cup, we're celebrating the fact that we are loved and pursued by a God who gave up heaven to pursue you and to call you his own. He's given up everything for you. Is there something in your life that's inhibiting you from imitating him that he's calling you to give up this morning. You know what that thing is? I trust that the Holy Spirit is going to do some work this morning. The communion table is an invitation to come back to the essence of what we celebrate, why we sing that we're loved by a Savior who gave up everything on the cross for us. His blood makes all things new. 
And so this morning, I encourage you as the worship band sings, you can come and receive the communion elements and take them on your own this morning, but take some time and pray. Pray that the light of Christ will shine in us and through us so that we can be the light that Jesus has called us to be as his church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, today I want to thank you so much, Lord, for the way, Lord, and grace that we'll never fully understand and grasp. Lord, you chose us when we were darkness. Lord, light has come into our world and for years and years we chose the darkness instead of choosing to be found in your light. But you pursued us. You've shined the light of your love, Lord. Into the life of your son Jesus who was born to be the light that our world so desperately needs. We look to him and we pray. Lord, that that same radiant light would shine through us. That our world might see that you are a good God. That you are a God who is all love and light. There's no darkness in you. You've kept all of your promises to us. Father, may we, by your grace, be people that imitate you in the way we love, the way we live, so that our lives can be a fragrant offering and a sacrifice that shows off, Lord, how beautiful you are to our broken world. We welcome your Holy Spirit. If there is anything, Lord, in our life, even a hint of it that's inhibiting us from being a greater imitation Lord, of your love, of your light to our world. May you show us what those things are. Thank you that we can have that conversation with you, knowing that anything that we confess will be washed clean and forgiven. We thank you, Lord. What grace to be called children of light. Help us to live up to that calling. In Christ's matchless name we pray. Amen.